0: Good morning. Good to see you guys. You know, there are uh, moments in our lives that are filled with such significance on both a national level and a global level that these moments are etched into our brain permanently. And you remember, if I, I, I'll, I'll say a couple in a moment, and you will remember instantly right where you were, and what you were doing when you heard the news. If you're of a certain generation, November 22nd, 1963, just by saying the date, some of you are already nodding your head up and down, November 22nd, 1963 is the date that John F. Kennedy was shot and killed in Dallas, Texas, and 60 years later... 60 years, for some of you, you're thinking, am I really that old? (laughs) I'm not gonna say yes to that, but some of you are thinking that right now. 60 years later, though, you can remember, when you hear hear that date, or you hear the term JFK, 60 years later, you can remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when the news came over the airwaves. Is that not true? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, For others of you, also of that generation, April 4th, 1968, which is the date that Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed in a Memphis hotel. And when you heard it, you probably remember exactly where you were and what you were doing. If you're from my generation, so somebody who was born in the 1970s, the late 1970s, by the way, (laughs) um, you probably remember... Uh, November 9th, 1991, which is the day that Magic Johnson came on the nationally broadcast. You No, 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 no. You laugh, but I guarantee you, people in my generation remember that day because that was the day that AIDS became very real to an entire generation of people. When he came on the airwaves and said he had to retire immediately, and the biggest basketball star in the world contacted AIDS. My generation stopped. I remember exactly where I was. I was walking from PE class to 7th grade. I was in 7th grade. I was walking from PE to 7th grade um, health class at Hedrick, Hedrick Junior High in Medford. And I, I remember the, the news and, and how it hit me. Um, and I will never forget it. It was one of those moments that was etched in my brain permanently. And of course, 9-11. We probably all remember exactly where we were and what we were doing when that news hit and when that first plane crashed into the tower. When, when, what we saw and what we remember, we will never forget those things. And the reason we remember these things, these moments of time, is because of their significance. How in many ways, they were life-altering news, both nationally nationally. And globally, nationally, and also personally for many of us. And I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. You remember those things, and they're etched in your brain permanently. Now, if you were a Jewish person in the first half of the first century AD, the events that took place in early April would have been life-altering news. And no matter how many years went by, you would remember exactly where you were and what you were doing when the events that we're going to look at today took place. And what's interesting, it's not just one event. It's a full week of events. And every single one of them, this entire week, every single one of the events of this week is hugely significant. It's chock full of significance. And that's the reason why, in the gospel accounts, a ton of emphasis is given to the last seven days of the Lord Jesus' life. The Gospel of Matthew, seven chapters are devoted to this last week. That's 25% of the Gospel is devoted to just these last seven days. In Mark's Mark's account, six chapters, or 38% of the book, is devoted to these last seven days. In the Gospel according to Luke, six chapters, again, a, a quarter of the book is devoted to the Passion Week. And in the Gospel of John, 11 chapters, or just over, now think about this, just over half of the book is devoted to these last seven days. And so there's a ton of emphasis on these seven days, which is what leads some commentators to say that the Gospel accounts are really passion narratives with long introductions. And that's a fair way of saying it. The reason each gospel writer gives such an emphasis to these last seven days is because everything Jesus came to do was done in these last seven days. And everything was done with the cross in mind. And the ramifications of these last seven days shapes the destiny of the creation. And, more personally, it shapes the destiny of your soul. So, truly, these last seven days, this week in Jesus' life, are the most important seven days in the history of the world. By far, the most important seven days in the history of the world are right right here. And 2,000 years later, we're still impacted by the events that took place during this week. And so, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at three symbolic scenes from Palm Sunday, and the next morning, that Luke connects, and uh, we're going to see how Jesus confronts us by what he does in him, because Jesus is going to do and say some things that are very confrontational. Get out of your mind, O Jesus, meek and mild, because he is not that in this account. He is the confrontational one who at every step along the way, he's confronting Israel, he's forcing Israel to make a choice, and by doing so, he's forcing you to make a choice. What will you do with them? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, go ahead and open them. Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19 is where we're going to be. Now as you're turning, uh, let me remind you that uh, the people of Israel are gathering in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, which was and is the high Holy point on the Jewish calendar. This was the high point each and every year for the Jews. And uh, it commemorated how God passed over the houses that were dabbed in the lamb's blood on the night of the Exodus and how He saved a whole generation of people. He rescued and redeemed uh, the entire nation of Israel from Egyptian bondage on this evening. And historians tell us that during the Passover week, Uh, Jerusalem, which was not that, it's not that big of a place, it would swell to upwards of two million people. And so it was jam-packed. You got to just picture it. The hillsides are covered with families coming to celebrate the Passover. It's, the city is jam-packed. There's Tents and, and canvases and uh, everything set up on hillsides has got this frenzied activity. It was a raucous environment. And everybody, families are gathering. They haven't seen each other for months at a time. And so the, the city is buzzing with anticipation. Um, they're hoping, many of them are hoping, to finally get a glimpse of Jesus. Maybe to get a chance to witness him perform a miracle or to hear him teach. Because for many of them, they've heard about Jesus, but for a great many of them, they hadn't seen him. Remember, there's no, there's no internet. There's no Facebook. There's no text messaging or po- posting a video of one of the miracles. Um, they've heard. A lot of people have heard, but they don't have any idea what he looks like. So Jerusalem is stirring because the one they've heard so much about, the one that people were starting to place their messianic hope in, might be in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And it was a question if he was going to be there because there were so many threats against his life. The people were curious, would he have the guts to actually show up? I mean, that's the way you gotta think about it. They're thinking, would he have the guts to show up in Jerusalem for the Passover week? And so we're gonna look at three scenes, beginning in verse 28, and we're gonna work through verse 48. So we're gonna have to move kinda quick, and we'll do our best. Here we go. Verse 28 in Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he had just given a discourse. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it. And bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So Jesus is traveling with his guys. Um, He's left Jericho. He's traveled 16 miles from Jericho to Bethpage, uh, which is just a, a mile outside of Jerusalem. And at this point, notice this, that Jesus starts to make the preparations. He's the one that instigates this. He makes the preparations to present himself to the nation of Israel as its king. And you got to understand that. Sometimes Christians think that the triumphal entry is just something that sort of happened to Jesus. Like there was this spontaneous eruption and all these people started clamoring to Jesus and Jesus was just so darn caught off guard by it that he was like, oh, shucks, all of this is for me? No, that is not what's taking place here. He's saying, no, no, no. This isn't, that isn't, get that out of your mind. That's not what's happening at all because the triumphal entry is not something that happened to Jesus. The triumphal entry is something that Jesus caused to happen to Israel. It's something that Jesus caused to happen to the people of Israel so that they have to make a choice concerning him. Because he is presenting himself, he will do it very intentionally, he is presenting himself as their king. He's very intentional all the way through the three scenes that we're going to look at this morning. He's presenting himself in such a way that they have to come to wrestle with his identity. So he tells two of his disciples to go into the village, and they're going to find a colt tied up there. And if anybody says, hey, what are you doing? Why are you untying my colt? Just let them know the Lord has need of it. That's a pretty bold claim Um, to put it in our cultural understanding. That would be, you know, a cult in that day would be like a small little um, pickup truck or a Kubota tractor or a John Deere mule, something that's a really valuable commodity on a farm that hauls things for you. It was a beast of burden. A donkey was. It was a beast of burden. And Jesus says, you go commandeer that thing because I'm the king and you go commandeer it. And and if anybody asks you who needs it, you just say, the Lord needs it. And notice he identifies himself as the Lord. You will hear sometimes, people will say, that Jesus never claimed to be God, that it's something the early church made up long after the fact. Notice that that's not true. He tells his guys with increasing clarity that he's really the Lord of the universe, and he really has the authority as the Lord to commandeer this animal for his purposes. And so he says, you're going to find this colt, go find it, go untie it, and bring it to me. Verse 32. So so those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So they apparently it worked. Um, he, th- he, try that next time. When you need a John Deere mule, just go untie that thing and start possessing it and see how that works. If you say the Lord has need of it? Apparently it works. But it works here because these people recognize. Now maybe Jesus has this prearranged, we don't know. Whatever the case, they recognize um, the authority of Jesus and they say, oh, okay, Jesus needs this. Now ask yourself, um, why would Jesus do this? Why would he want to ride into Jerusalem? Because the pilgrims, the custom was for the pilgrims to walk into Jerusalem. The normal approach to Jerusalem for one of the pilgrims, for, one of, for a pilgrim, for one of the, the feasts or festivals would be to walk. And as you would walk, you would sing all these different psalms that were, that were prescribed for you to do. So why would Jesus want to ride a colt? Well, here's the reason why, and some of you, you probably know it it because you've been a Christian for a long time. What's happening here is Jesus is very intentionally enacting a messianic prophecy, the messianic prophecy that comes from Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, which was written, now think about this, written 550 years before Christ. This prophecy was told that said, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Zion is Israel. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now when Jesus, when he tells him to go and commandeer this animal, this is exactly what he's thinking. By riding in on this colt, Jesus is choosing to act out the fulfillment of this prophecy and to present himself as the king. And to force Israel, the people of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, to force them to make a decision. Through the riding in of this colt, he's saying, yes, I really am the king. Yes, I really am the king that God promised. I'm the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And I'm coming to establish peace. That's what he's coming to establish. When you come riding in on a donkey colt, you're coming on a humble mount. You're coming in a very humble mount. When you come riding in on a stallion, when you come riding in on a war war horse, then you're coming to conquer. So Jesus, he presents himself as the Messiah. Again, he's doing this very intentionally. He's saying, I am the Messiah. And that alone, if you are somebody who has read the Gospels, that should kind of shock you. Because all throughout Jesus' life, whenever Messiah talk comes up, he tells people to be quiet about it. He says, I don't want you to tell people. But here, at the start of Passover week, Jesus is presenting himself as the promised Messiah. And what he's saying is, I am the righteous, saving, shalom-offering king. And what's amazing is, you can tell that the crowds understood all of this because of what they do next. Look at verse 35. And they brought it, they brought the, they brought the, uh, the donkey to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Um, so they start, they start spreading all these, these um, cloaks on the road, making a path, which is what they've done for other kings in Israel's history. This is a coronation path. And John's gospel tells us they cut off palm branches, which is where we get the term Palm Sunday from. and So they start cutting off these palm branches, which is a sign of peace, and they start spreading these cloaks on a road. This is a coronation path for their king. Everybody, the people in the crowd, when they see what Jesus is doing, they're saying, oh, this is our king. Israel's saying, the people are saying, yes, this is our king, this is amazing. The king is here, the one that we've been wanting and hoping, the one coming from David, who would defeat our enemies, he's here. They're celebrating this, they just start celebrating. Look at verse 37. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they, they, in John's gospel, they, tells, they tell us that there was people in front of Jesus and there were people behind Jesus. It was like this one-man parade and there's all this singing. They start singing Psalm 118, which is this Hallel psalm. It's a messianic psalm, um, which was a customary blessing for the people of God as the king led pilgrims into, into the Passover feast. And this is what the disciples are singing. They see Jesus for who he is. They see him as The king, the promised messianic king. And it's like this one-man parade, and Jesus is presenting himself. And the disciples are worshiping him as king. And the Pharisees, the religious leadership of Israel, they see what's going on. And the religious leadership, the one who we're supposed to represent, uh, we're supposed to represent God to the people, they see what's going on, and they instantly try to stop it. Because they don't actually think that Jesus is the king. And they can't believe that these disciples are doing this. And so verse 39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And you've got to picture the scene. Here's Jesus. You know, He's riding in on a little colt. And you know his feet are, are probably barely off the ground. But he's kind of looking down at these guys. And they're saying, you've got to tell these disciples to shut up. They can't worship you like this. Stop! You tell them to stop this. And Jesus replies, verse forty. He answered them. He says, "I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out." He's looking at these guys, looking down on them a little bit. Do you see what he's saying? By the way, he's saying, "Oh, you religious leadership." You people, you religious leadership of Israel, you're so willfully blind, willfully blind to my identity. you followed me along for three years. You know exactly who I am. But you're so willfully blind to the truth about who I am that even a lifeless stone sees better than you do. He says, if they don't worship me, the very stones will cry out because I really am the king and worship will come my way. This is, this is a stinging judgment against the religious leadership of Israel. He's saying, you're so blind. You know who I am and you're so willfully blind about it that these stones who are really blind, they will see it and they will worship me because the king deserves praise. That's what he's saying. It's a stinging indictment. And so he says, um, that's the first, thing, the first scene. He presents himself as the king, as the messianic king. And he confronts the religious leadership of Israel. And they reject his claim. He confronts them, he says, I am the messianic king. I am the one that the Lord sent. And they say, no, you're not. They completely reject him again. Now, the second scene is, is in verses 41 through 44. And what Luke's gonna show us is Jesus is going to present himself as a prophet. And this, is, this material is only found in the Gospel of Luke. It's pretty interesting little material. So verse 41, and when he drew near, when Jesus drew near and he saw the city, saw the city of Jerusalem, he wept over it. Um, now when he gets near the Mount of Olives, this is where he's at, he's at the Mount of Olives, and it overlooks all of the Kidron Valley. And if you've ever seen a photo of the, of, the, um, of the temple, it's taken probably from the Mount of Olives, probably taken from the Mount of Olives. It overlooks all of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful site. By the way, Israel trip, uh, this time next year. Um, Just talked to Rick last week, and we are on for this time next year. So if you want to sign up, email, where's Garrett? Good, he's not in here. Garrett at (laughs) trail.org. Send him an email. Garrett loves getting emails. Uh, Send him an email. Tell him you're interested. We're going to take a trip. Uh, this, hopefully, this next spring, if everything goes okay. So that's sign up, Garrett at Trail. If you're at all interested in going on an Israel trip next year, Garrett at trail.org. So over. He's there. He's overlooking the Mount of. He's overlooking all of the Kidron Valley. And as he's sitting there on this this colt, Luke tells us, he begins to weep. And it's not like just a single tear. The word that's used there, it's uh, it's a word that means sobbing, wailing. Look at verse 42. He wept over it saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. He is grieved by Israel's rejection of him. He's absolutely grieved by their rejection of him as their king. He's come and he's done all the works of the promised Messiah, And they should have recognized him. They should have seen all of the works, seen his teaching, heard what he had said, and said, this really is the Messiah. But they were so hard-hearted. They so didn't want to bend the knee and submit their will that they refused him. And so he weeps over their rebellion against him. He's broken-hearted over it. He's broken-hearted over their rejection of him. And he weeps over it. And then he announces judgment. Now, here's what I do want you to see. One of the guys brought this up on Friday morning, and I think it's really important. Um, if you were going to say we're going to be a Christ disciple, there has to be real brokenheartedness over the sin, the rejection of Jesus. Before you jump to judgment, which in our day, everybody's angry about something, we're the angry generation for some reason there, before you get there, there has to be brokenheartedness over the sin of rejection of Jesus. It has to move you to the point where you say, I can't, I will do everything within my power to try to bring this person to hear the good news of the gospel. Before, you cannot, if you're going to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I'm really a Christ follower, judgment should not be the first thing on your lips. What should be? A brokenheartedness over the sin of the rejection of Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. He sees. He's grieved over the fact that these people have rejected him. And so he, he, he uh, weeps over it. And then in verses 43 and 44, he announces judgment against them because of their rebellion against him. Look at verse 43. Jesus says, he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So he prophesies and he tells the nation of Israel and he tells Jerusalem itself, the judgment will come. Judgment is coming against their rebellion, and a day is coming that they will be completely crushed, and their walls, and all of Jerusalem was surrounded by walls. He's saying all of it will come crumbling down. Now, notice what Jesus is doing here, because he's acting in the role of a prophet. Well, what did prophets do? Here's what they did. They spoke on behalf of God. They were grieved by the sin of God's people, and they announced judgment. That's the role of a prophet. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He's weeping over the sin of God's people, their hard-heartedness and their rebellion against them from recognizing him for who he really is, from recognizing him as the promised Messiah. And then he's announcing judgment against them. That's the role of a prophet. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's very intentionally acting out the role of a prophet. And he announces judgment. And by the way, the judgment that he announces here it happens within one generation. Because starting in April of 66 AD, the Roman general Titus, he laid siege to Jerusalem for three and a half years. Um, Rome They came against Jerusalem massively. You can read about it in Josephus' Josephus's Jewish Wars. They surrounded Jerusalem, and they, they cut off its food supply. So much so... That the mothers within the walls, they resorted to cannibalism against their own children. And the Romans were so enraged that they started crucifying all the Jews. They just found a Jew, threw him up against the cross, nailed him to the cross. They did this all over the place. It's so much so that you read in Josephus, and he says, Any, anywhere you walk in Jerusalem, you're walking through a river of blood. Um, they sacked the city. They, set, temp- they set, the, uh, set fire to the temple, and they leveled the ground. And Josephus reports that over one million Jews were, were killed during the siege. The Romans completely destroyed it. To the point, um, again, Josephus, he says there was nothing left behind to show that Jerusalem had ever existed. That's the level of destruction we're talking about. So when Jesus says that judgment is coming for your rebellion against me, for your rejection of me, well, then what you can be sure of is that judgment is coming. So that's the second scene. Luke presents Jesus as the prophet who weeps over the sin of God's people, brokenhearted over it, and then he announces judgment against it. Now, the last scene, and we'll move quickly, the last scene is found in verses 45 through 48, and it takes place the very next day, but Luke connects it for a reason. Look at verse 45. And he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold. This is a famous scene, many of you guys know it. He enters this temple, he begins to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it's written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you've made it, he quotes Jeremiah 7, but you've made it a den of robbers. So he comes into the temple, and the purpose of the temple was to be a place where the worship of God was to happen. And the priests were responsible for the care of it, and they were to make sacrifices on behalf of the worshipers. And upon entering it, they were to make sacrifices and intercede for the life of the people. And Jesus, upon entering it, he finds that it's not being taken, it's not being taken care of by the priests. Um, and the priests, through the merchants, were exploiting people. And instead of it being a house of prayer and a place where people could come and, and have quiet meditation be, be, before the Lord and, and uh, make sacrifices for their sins, Jesus says it's become a house of commerce. And Jesus says it's become a den of robbers. And what Jesus does here, notice what he does. He acts as a true priest. And he restores the temple to its intended purpose by driving out the merchants, by making, saying, you guys are in the court of this, all the merchandising was in the court of the Gentiles. By the way, you go to any temple around the world. I was at, when I was in Nepal a couple of years ago, the temples were the largest places of merchandising I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the Hindu temple, uh, you couldn't go anywhere without being sold something. Uh, the Buddhist temple was the same way. It's huge merchandising. And Jesus comes upon this temple, and this is what he's saying. And he sees this, and it's taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which was the place where the Gentiles and the Jews could come together and worship God. And he sees this is taking place, and he says, this is a den of robber. And so he throws them all out, and he restores the temple to its intended purpose by driving out all of the merchandising. And then, verse 40, um, 47, he throws this out, and then he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. So the you know, the religious leadership of Israel, for three and a half years, they've watched their influence wane. And they've watched Jesus' influence grow. And so, right here, beginning right here, they look for an opportunity to destroy him, to get him off the scene, to regain some of their religious clout. But now wasn't the opportune time because the people of Israel were hanging on his every word. And Luke leaves the scene right there, and we'll do the same. Now, here's what I want to do. I got a little bit of time left. Uh, I want to step back from these three scenes that Luke just gave us, and I want you to see how Jesus presented himself. Well, how did he present himself? Well, he presents himself as the messianic king who confronts you and you have to make a choice. Second, he presents himself as a prophet who weeps over the sins of God's people and announces judgment. And then lastly, he presents himself as a priest who cleanses the temple and restores it to its original purposes. So king, prophet, and priest. And I say that and you look at me like, so what? that what you're thinking right now? Be honest. You're in church. You can't lie. Prophet, priest, king. I say that to you and you look at me like, well, so what? Well, here's what. In the old covenant, those were the three offices that the people of Israel needed to rightly relate to God. Those were the three offices. They needed a king and they needed a prophet and they needed a priest in order to rightly relate to God. And when one was appointed to those offices, They were anointed with oil, which signified God's blessing. Now ask yourself, what does the title Christ mean? Because Christ is not a last name. Christ means Mashiach. It means anointed one. Which means the three offices that the people needed to rightly relate to God are combined in the person of Christ. Christ. The three offices that every human being needed in order to rightly relate to God, they needed a king, they needed a priest, they needed a prophet. Those three offices, which were anointed with oil, are all combined in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. They needed a king who would defeat their enemies and lead them in righteousness. They needed a prophet who would speak forth God's word, who would call them to repentance, who would lead them in covenant faithfulness. And they needed a priest who would offer sacrifices and who would intercede for them. And what Luke is showing us at the very outset of Passion Week is that which they needed to rightly relate to God and what you need in order to rightly relate to God is actually fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ because he's the true king. He really is the true king who defeated our greatest enemies of Satan, sin, and death. He's the true king who when you pledge your Love and loyalty to him, he extends to you amnesty for all of the rebellion you've ever committed. He's the true king who lets his words and his ways shape your life. That's what living under a king is. You're letting the king's words and ways shape your life. He offers you a true and better kingdom. You see, at the cross, Jesus defeated our greatest enemies, he defeated our greatest enemies. And the greatest enemies are never uh, horizontal. Which is what we always think they are. Uh, we always think they're the person next door. No, the greatest enemies are Satan's sin, uh, Satan's sin and death, and through the cross Jesus defeats them. and he offers you amnesty, and then through his resurrection, he offers you new life. He's resurrected. He's the reigning king right now, which means his kingdom. Now listen, his kingdom is indestructible. There will never be an election for the new king of the universe. He's, he's, that should bring a, bring a hallelujah. Um, there is no more elections needed. There's one king. He's ruling and reigning right now as the king of kings and lords of lords. His kingdom is forevermore and it's, it's ruled in peace and righteousness with joy and justice. And what Jesus does, now look at what he does in this scene. He presents himself as the king and by doing so, He confronts and challenges Israel to make a choice. He confronts them. And he's confronting you, by the way. He's saying, yes, I am the true king. And as king, you must either crown me or kill me. Those are the two options. You must either crown me or kill me, but what you must not do is trifle with me because I really am a king. By purposely enacting Zechariah 9.9, 9, Jesus is challenging them to make a choice. Crown me or kill me, but do not trifle with me because I really am the king, and I really am offering you amnesty. But you got to make a choice. You can live within my kingdom now by letting my words and my ways shape your life forevermore. Now listen, if you're not a Christian, my suggestion to you, <laughs> if you haven't come under the lordship of Christ, if he hasn't become the center of your life, well then, My suggestion to you is to receive his amnesty. It's a real simple process. All you got to do is say, Lord, I admit that I have lived in rebellion against you. Your words and your ways have not shaped my life. And you you actually have to say, would you forgive me of this? And I want to make you the center of my life going forward. Jesus is the true king. It's either crown him or kill him, but you cannot trifle with him. He's a real king who offers real amnesty and a full and better kingdom. Second thing he is, that we see here, is he's the true prophet. He's the true prophet who offers the final and full revelation of God. We don't have time. I'd make you turn there, but we're running out of time. Hebrews chapter 1, it says it like this. It says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, talking about Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purifications for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now listen, what he's saying is Jesus is the true prophet who offers us the final and full revelation of God. He fully, Jesus fully reveals the character of God, which means if you wanna know what God actually is like, You don't have to go anywhere. You simply have to look to Christ. If you want to know how God relates to humanity, you don't have to go to a temple. You have to look into the face of Christ. Now, here's what that means. There's a lot of people in our world who are claiming to be a prophet for God. But the scriptures declare that Jesus is the true prophet. And he alone is the final and full revelation of God because he's God in the flesh. Which means you have to listen to him which is exactly what Moses predicted. Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he said, the Lord God will raise up for you another prophet like me from your, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So he's the true prophet. And as the prophet, now here's what it means for you. As the prophet, as the true prophet, you must either accept his teaching fully or reject them outright you must either accept his teaching fully or you must reject them outright. But what you must not do is put them on a shelf and say that Jesus is just a good teacher. You must not do that. If he's really the prophet of God, you must either accept his teaching fully or you must reject them completely. But what you must not do is simply put him on the shelf and claim that he was just a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis, in his classic essay, The Lord, Liar, and Lunatic, he gets it so right. He says this. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But, Lewis says, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis is right. If Jesus is the true prophet of God, and he is, he shows it right here. If he's the true prophet of God, you either, you must make a choice. You must either accept his teaching fully or reject, him, reject his teaching outright, but you cannot put him on a shelf and say, well, he's just a good human teacher. You must listen to everything he ever taught. If he really is, he died and rose again, you, if he's the one who's defeated death, you must listen to everything he ever said because he's the one who told you how to relate to God. Well, what did Jesus declare? Here's what he declared. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He declares forgiveness and new life is found in him alone. Not through a religious system, but through repentant faith. Not through a system. There's no system you climb your way way up to God. No. Christ has come all the way down. And he climbed up the cross for you. He's the true and final prophet. Oh, I wish I had more time. So much to say here. That'll suffice for now, though. So he's the true king who offers us a true and better kingdom. You've got to either crown him or kill him. He's the true prophet who offers us the final and full revelation of God. You must either accept his teaching fully or reject him outright. Here's the third thing. He's the true priest who offers us the final and full sacrifice. He's the true priest. He goes in the temple. That's where the priests are. He's the final and full, uh, he's the the true priest who offers us the final and full sacrifice. But he's infinitely better than the priests of old. Because all the priests of old were sinful. They were just like you and me. Just like you and me. Completely sinful. They did their religious duty, but they were also very, very sinful. But Jesus was completely sinless. In Hebrews chapter 4, I'm not going to make you turn there. But it says this, it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. He was tempted, but never yielded to sin. So he's the true high priest who offers the full and final sacrifice. Did you notice when he went into the temple, he didn't make a sacrifice? Well, why didn't he as one who lived under the law? Here's the reason why, because he knew in five days, on Good Friday, he himself would become the sacrifice to pay for all of our sin, every single bit of it. He's the Now listen, he's the true priest who offers the final and full sacrifice himself. He becomes the sacrifice. Again, Hebrews chapter 10, I'll read it to you. Day after day, priests stand and perform his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices. Now listen, these these priests in the Old Testament, they offer the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But now, now he's referring to Christ, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's amazing. Which means for you, if he's the true priest, and he is, it means for you, you must either rest in his sacrifice completely or strive endlessly to try to earn your own righteousness? Which will it be? If he's the true priest who offers the final and full sacrifice, you got to make a choice. Will I either accept his sacrifice on my behalf? Will I rest in the sacrifice that he made completely, or will I strive ceaselessly all the days of my life seeking to earn a righteousness that I know I can never earn? You see what, oh gosh, you guys, do you see what Jesus is doing at the very outset of Passion Week? He's showing us that everything we needed to rightly relate to God, to have lasting peace with God, is made available in him alone. And Jesus is saying to you, would you, even you, known on this day, what would make for peace? Because this is what Jesus offers. Lasting peace with God. The very thing humanity has been searching for and striving after ever since the fall of Adam and Eve is the very thing that Christ is offering to you. But you have to accept his offer. You have to see him as the true king. You have to crown him as the true king. You have to embrace his teaching completely. And you have to rest in the sacrifice that he's made for you. You have to do these things. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to come under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You have to accept his amnesty. Because the next time we see Jesus, he won't be on the back of a donkey. We see in Revelation chapter 19, he tells us the next time we see Christ, he'll be riding a war horse to execute judgment against all those who in their rebellion didn't accept him, didn't receive amnesty for him. But what it means for you is, right now, there's still time. There's this window of opportunity to make Jesus your Savior and your King right now. And there's no better day to do it than at the start of Passion Week. There's no better time to do it than at the start of Passion Week, which enables you then, for all of the Passion Week, to celebrate everything that Christ has done. So give your life to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and I don't know who that is, but you do, if you're here this morning and you knew, you knew walking through those doors, you weren't a Christian, my friend, see him as he truly is. The true king, the true prophet, the true priest who has done everything necessary for you. And give your life to him. Give your life to him. Admit your sins. Repent of him. Ask him to forgive you and he'll take you just like that. And then be baptized next Sunday. We got a baptism right after church next Sunday. Come and be baptized. There's no better time to give your life to the Lord than right now. And there's no better time if you're a Christian to come to the Lord's table than right now at the start of Passion Week, which is what we're gonna do. So hopefully when you came in, you got a little thing of communion. What you're doing when you're coming to the Lord's table is you are essentially thanking the Lord for what he has done on your behalf. The bread representing his body, the blood representing the shed blood of Christ, the juice representing the shed blood of Christ that was shed for you so that you can put, be put into a right relationship with God. Again, the thing that humanity has been searching for and striving after ever since the fall of Eve, Adam and Eve, has been made available for you through Christ. And so as we come to the table, as we pray, if there is um, business that you need to do with the Lord, take some time and do it now so that as you enter into Passion Week, you are truly in communion. With the Lord. So let's take a moment and just have quiet reflection and do some business with the Lord. Father, as we hold these elements in our hands, we are reminded of the true sacrifice that you made on our behalf, that you really came all the way down from heaven to earth to take on human flesh. In order, to climb, be, in order to climb all the way up the cross, in order to pay for our sins, where your body was bruised and broken and your blood was shed so that the remission of sins could be accomplished and so that humanity that has long been in rebellion against you could actually be put in the right relationship with you. We could be restored to fellowship and not just to fellowship but to actual friendship. Friendship. That's an amazing thing that we take for granted, Lord. And so as we partake, Father, would you please enliven our hearts and our minds once again around the cross of Christ. And as we enter into Passion Week, uh, we do so with joy and with expectation and with real longing, Lord, to see the name of Christ the risen Christ, exalted among us. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.